welcome to episode 1498 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined on a special Monday episode with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Well, special for me, you're often here on Mondays. Yes, that's right. Well, we have a team preview podcast to get to, so in a moment, well, maybe a little bit more than a moment because there's some <laughs> ground to cover first, but we'll be bringing on Sahad of Sharma from The Athletic to talk about the Cubs, and then we'll be talking to Nick Picoro of the Arizona Republic about the Diamondbacks. But before we get there, we have a couple big stories to get to. So over the weekend, there was the big story of the failed and then remade Mookie Betts trade. There were some more revelations about the Astros sign-stealing scandal. There was a failed Mets purchase. I don't know if we'll even get to that one because we've got a lot to talk about first. So... The Mookie trade. Mookie is a Dodger. Now the, the Dodgers have traded for Mookie again or for real this time, except it's no longer a three-team trade and the other trade that was supposed to happen is not happening and there are other players involved in the deal. So you have actually written all of this out because it's a lot to keep track of. So do you want to give everyone the new terms as we understand them? Yes. Cats and dogs living <laughs> together. It's yeah. just... It's madness. So, okay, I'm going to do this, and hopefully I get no things wrong. (laughs) Hopefully. This is our aspiration. So the Dodgers are going to receive from the Boston Red Sox, Mookie Betts, headliner. Mm -hmm. Also, David Price and $48 million of his current contract, which is half of what's remaining. That is the the only thing. That is particularly still pending here because they have to approve the money with the commissioner's office. So that yes. that's the Dodgers from the Red medicals, Sox. The medicals are done <laughs> this medicals time. Medicals are done. <laughs> yes. And then the Dodgers will also receive from the Minnesota Twins, Brewster Gratterall, who was going to be a Boston Red Sox and now will not be. And we will all be denied the pleasure and also discomfort of listening to Boston announcers try to pronounce his name, <laughs> which is probably for the best, but probably also would have been funny the, the, the one time. They will receive Luke Rayleigh, who is a prospect who Eric had in the 35-plus future value range. Mm-hmm. Originally drafted by the Dodgers, I believe. And, Indeed. And then was uh, in the Brian Dozier trade. Correct. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Crayley. Okay. And then they also will receive a comp B pick for the 2020 draft, which tomorrow or today, I should say, what day is it? Who are we? What is happening in the world? Today at Fangraphs, you can read Prospect Week content. And one of the draft trends that Eric will highlight is how deep this draft is and the motivation teams have had to acquire uh, compensation picks as a result of that. So intrigue and then we have now moved on we have moved on from the dodgers for a moment the red sox will receive from the los angeles dodgers alex verdugo as originally reported and then they will get some additional prospect compensation to make up for the loss of brewster who again announcers no longer going to be able to mess that name up Mm -hmm. so they will receive as part of the new package dieter (laughs) jam Gosh, <laughs> Ben, it's been a day. It's a lot Jeter, of Jeter Downs. Yep. It's funny that I would get that wrong because the name <laughs> jokes are just going to be. 
who the Dodgers list has not been released yet and our top 100 will not drop until a little bit later this week, but Eric has a 50 future value on downs. And so that's forthcoming. And then also Connor Wong, who is a catcher who has some positional versatility. He was a 40 plus on the Dodgers list last year. He'll be in sort of the 40 plus to 40 range. It seems like when it's all said and done this year, there have been some issues with his approach, but he is a catcher sort of in the Austin Barnes mold where there's other positional versatility. So there is value, but he's a considerably less well-regarded prospect than say Downs is. And then the twins, you know, the twins, they're going to receive from the Dodgers, Kenta Maeda and $10 million Mm -hmm. and a minor leaguer that has not yet been named, but who by the time you have listened to this podcast, no doubt will have been named. And so you can go to the twins list at Fangraphs to see all about that person because uh, we'll update that list once we've confirmed the name. So that is, (laughs) as I understand it, the structure of the deal. And then as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. the Dodgers deal with the Angels appears to have fallen through, which would suggest that Jock Peterson is still a a Dodger and also Ross Stripling Mm -hmm. and that Rangifa will not be Dodger. And I think Andy Pajes was also in that deal, no longer. So a lot of guys stay and put, but also a lot of guys on the move. And most importantly, the medicals are done and Mookie Betts is now a Los Angeles Dodger. Yes. So I think you did it. You got through all the teams. Yeah, except for the easiest one to say correctly. (laughs) That one I messed up, Ben. (laughs) So the reason that we have all these new names and now a two-team trade along with another two-team trade instead of a three-team trade and the reason that this dragged on for days is that reportedly the Red Sox balked at Brewstar Gratterall's medicals when they got them. So usually when a trade is made, that's kind of a formality. We hear that it's done pending the medical review, and usually that goes just fine, but every now and then it does not. And in this case, the Red Sox evidently saw something in Gratterall's medicals that made them think that he was going to be a reliever long-term, not a starter. Which was something that most people thought without seeing his medical. So that was what made this strange. I I think when we talked about this trade, we noted that the Twins had been planning to use Gratterall as reliever, that he had had elbow and shoulder issues in his past, that the consensus seemed to be that he had this max effort delivery. And because of the health problems, he was probably bullpen bound. And evidently, the Red Sox saw things differently before they saw what was inside his arm. There were conspiracy theories going around that perhaps the Red Sox were just using that as a justification to get out of the trade or change the package because they were upset with how negative the reaction to the trade was. I don't know that the reaction to the trade will be any different with Jeter Downs and Connor Wong in the deal instead of Bruce Dark Ratterall. I think the negativity came from trading Mookie Betts, which is still something that they did. But That was weird in that that was kind of the consensus perception of Gretterold to begin with. And so for them to really almost sabotage this entire thing over the idea that he is a reliever, that seemed sort of strange and made them look even worse temporarily. So I don't know what was going on there. Maybe they were just more bullish on him than most people were until they saw whatever was going on inside that arm. But that almost cast this whole thing aside. Yeah, it is possible, I suppose. It would not 
strike me as like completely ridiculous that while the the general sort of contours of his medical were known that this could potentially have been you know the normal trade stuff that happens but this particular trade had such scrutiny and i think the incentives to get information out there about it were so uh so great that you know this is like the sort of normal trade stuff that gets scuttled and then reconfigured, but it just so happened that the leaks were such that we heard about it. Right, true. Because, you know, it's not unusual for us to generally understand how a guy's elbow or shoulder might look, and then the team, like you said, gets gets in there and is like, oh boy. Yeah. The fact that the twins were willing to trade Maeda for Gradrol seemingly straight up at first that kind of sent the message that the twins were not very optimistic about Gratterall's long-term prognosis because right. Maida's older and, and maybe lower ceiling, and so they were taking someone who seemed to be safer, and you would think that they would know Gratterall as well as anyone. So that was kind of what I took from that initial trade. But right. yes, once they saw whatever is happening inside there, they thought, uh-oh, and that <laughs> almost KO'd this whole thing. Well, and it's not surprising to me that the Dodgers' appetite for a guy like him might be higher and greater than it would be for the Twins because they've shown a willingness to sort of look at guys like this who have spotty medicals but are still productive and promising. And so I am unsurprised that they would have a more significant appetite for that and would choose to deal directly with the twins. I am unsurprised that the Red Sox, upon seeing something squishier than they had hoped, would say, oh boy, we're trading Mookie Betts and, you know, we've crossed that Rubicon, so I guess there's no going back, although they could have just not traded Mookie Betts, but (laughs) but we better get something more than a relief-bound prospect and an outfielder who has some some dodgy makeup and off-field stuff. So I can see that happening, and I can see the twins being like, hey, we don't have to help you with any of this. Right. So get us something good, please. So all of those motivations make good sense to me, but they all also conspired to make me feel very anxious over the weekend. So I don't particularly care for that, but I don't think any of the people involved um, are especially concerned with my anxiety. So there you go. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, once this was so widely reported, it would have been difficult to undo it. (laughs) I think the Red Sox and the Dodgers were very motivated to get this done and hopefully to get it done quickly because there was time pressure here in that the pitchers in the trade are about to report to spring training and so it's like it's time for pitchers and catchers to report essentially and they need to know where to report to so that was a problem and then Tony Clark and the Players Association put out a statement chastising these teams for everything leaking and for it taking so long to resolve and these players lives being in limbo while they waited for it to be completed so that was not going over well either and yeah once you show that you're very willing or eager to trade someone like Mookie Betts then how would it go over if you bring him back and keep him and will he be happy knowing that he was dangled to every one all season long and right. that a trade was agreed to you could imagine how that might be kind of an awkward thing for the clubhouse so i think they all wanted to get this done and meanwhile it was reported that Artie moreno the angels owner was getting impatient about having to wait for the trade that his team had agreed to with the dodgers because that was contingent on this other one happening it's not 
clear as we record why that Stripling Peterson deal fell apart. I don't know if it's Moreno or just because the the Dodgers, I don't know, felt a little less confident in doing that deal given the players they got back now. It's hard to say. Maybe Peterson will still be moved at some point because it seems like he is somewhat expendable now. But yeah, baseball was just kind of waiting for a few days and the biggest story was unresolved. So this was not a great look for all involved, but it, it does seem to be done now at last. I think you could say that the Red Sox did a little bit better with this package than the original package. I'm seeing a tweet from Ken Rosenthal who says, A number of baseball people saying Red Sox did well. Verdugo, Downs, project as regulars. Wong has good arm power. Also moved half of Price's money. Deal at least comparable to what D-backs got for Goldie, who cost less than Betts and Walkier and had no other contracts attached. Of course, the Cardinals then signed Goldschmidt to an extension, which the Dodgers probably will not do. But I think much of the negative response to this trade was because of the guy they were giving up, not so much the guys they were getting back. Yes, they seem to have gotten pretty good value. The players that they got project to be pretty good. But I think when you're giving up a beloved franchise player like Mookie... And you're a big market team that is expected to contend every year and could have contended and may still contend this year. That's just not something that's going to go over well with a lot of your fans for valid reasons. I think the person I'm actually the happiest for in all of this, I mean, apart from the possibility that Maeda is going to continue, like, going to be able to start in Minnesota, is you just know that, like, things had frayed with fans in Boston for David Price. And then if he was going to have to be there still, and he's still a productive player and he'll be a, he'll be valuable and useful to the Dodgers. And it was just going to be, awkward for him so i'm glad he doesn't have to deal with that so that's a thing that Mm -hmm. that isn't in question anymore but yeah it it is you know we have talked at great length about how weird a job it is for these for these folks and they are constantly in under threat of disruption and very few of them can feel wholly confident that they you know couldn't be moved for the right offer but it's very strange to not know you know a couple of weeks before work starts where you're going to be living and so that part of this is suboptimal and i think that the union was right to be like hey actual human beings involved you know like uh uh, like Mookie Betts doesn't have a spring training Airbnb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> doesn't have one. Where's he gonna live? They're yeah. all booked up. I bet yeah. they're all booked up. Yeah, if you're Mookie, I bet you can find a place. But <laughs> but yeah. yes, I think. I guess you could do some swappity do with some of the other people involved with the trade, but like, what if they don't have? What if it's not near good coffee, or you know, it doesn't have another <laughs> bathroom, and you need another one of those because you're gonna have people with you? I'm just saying, it's very disruptive. Yeah. So the guys that the Dodgers ended up giving up here, you mentioned that you don't have the the Dodgers rankings yet at Fangrass, but according to the MLB.com ones, Jeter Downs was fifth on the Dodgers list and Connor Wong was 28th. And by the way, now this deal involves bets, price and Wong. So you've got a a prices Wong potential there. You've got all kinds of headline crimes that could be committed. And now everyone has a second crack at their headlines and they use their best headlines last week so we're still in danger here ben you know what you could say right now what's that 
It's going downs. <laughs> That's another one. Yeah. Oh, boy. So or, We're not going to use it at Fangraphs, so it's fine to waste it on the good. podcast. You could joke about the Red Sox trading for a Jeter, who is named after Derek Jeter. There's oh, yeah. all kinds of terrible options there. But anyway, you can see why the Dodgers would trade these guys because of the Dodgers' depth. They're pretty expendable, even though they're good prospects, particularly downs. Downs is kind of blocked by Corey Seager and Gavin Lux, and Wong is behind multiple young catchers who are even more highly touted than he is. So in terms of immediate production, the Dodgers aren't really giving up a whole lot here. So you can see why this is appealing for them, as we discussed last week. Yeah, they still managed to kind of do that, didn't they? Yep. (laughs) They still managed that. Yes, they did. Those Dodgers, artful, you could call them. (laughs) You could. (laughs) I am the worst. I should be in prison. (sighs) So I don't know if there's anything else. We obviously did an entire podcast episode (laughs) on this last week. So if you missed that and you want to hear what we think about bets and price going to the Dodgers, then you can go listen to that and it's all still applicable. So some of the specifics changed and it took days to clarify, but... Now, this story seems to be pretty much tied up. Yep. Mm. (laughs) The price ended up being right. See, that one's just, that's old hat. There's nothing. There's nothing fancy about that. We've done that one. Mm -hmm. Mm. So, in other news, and news that uh, just does not end (laughs) and does not get tied up neatly, the Astros signed ceiling scandal gained another dimension on Friday when the Wall Street Journal's Jared Diamond came out with a report right around the same time that A.J. Hinch was trying to explain himself in a pre-taped interview on MLB Network. Don't know if that was a coincidence or not, but Jared reported some details about the origins of the Astros sign stealing scandal. And This can be kind of confusing to square with the MLB report and the timeline is difficult to piece together and maybe not everyone was able to read this entire article. So I'll sum up my understanding about this and if you think any differently about anything, please correct me. But my sense is that this didn't directly contradict anything in the MLB Rob Manfred nine-page report that we have discussed on the podcast, but... It did cast some things in a new light and present some new details and definitely taught me some things that I had not inferred from that MLB report. So again, don't think that report was wrong, but it was certainly leaving out some details here that seem relevant and seemed like maybe they could have been included. So a lot of Jared's report in the journal was evidently based on a letter that Rob Manfred sent to Jeff Luno at the time that suspensions were handed down, sort of summarizing his findings, but that was not made public. And then Jared also talked to some of the other people involved here to get more detail. So essentially, all of this seems to have started in late 2016, when an Astros intern, of all people, presented a creation that he had come up with called Codebreaker, which was evidently an Excel-based algorithm where people would just plug in the signs that catchers were laying down during the game and then also the pitch type and whatever this Excel spreadsheet was would kind of crunch those inputs, I guess, and come out with the output of what the signs were calling for. 
This is not the most high-tech solution either, higher tech than a, a trash can, but still just a spreadsheet. And this was evidently in use early in the 2017 season and was something that the Astros were doing in the video room. So as the MLB report noted, there were two different sign-stealing schemes. There was the banging scheme, and then there was this replay room scheme where people in the replay room were decoding opposing team signs and then relaying them somehow to the players who were then relaying them to the batters via runners on second base. So the banging scheme was something that seems to have happened at home and was pretty much confined to 2017 as far as we know, and mostly after the first couple months of 2017, whereas this code breaker scheme was in place, it seems like, for most or all of 2017 and parts of 2018, and not just at home, but also on the road, but not necessarily an effect on every pitch because it was dependent on there being a runner on the bases to relay those signs to the batter. So what we know now, which was not entirely clear from the report, is that this replay room scheme was dreamed up by the front office. I don't know whether this in turn was solely responsible for conceiving it, but it was something that came from the front office, was shared with the people in the video room, and this would happen during games. And much of Diamond's report centers on what Jeff Luno knew. And it certainly seems from the weight of the evidence in here that Luno had a pretty good idea that this was going on, although he denied it and he presented evidence to the contrary to Rob Manfred that seemed to call into question some of the testimony that Manfred was basing his findings on. But a lot of Luno's excuses here are essentially, I didn't read the whole email, (laughs) which is... uh, pretty flimsy. I mean, hey, we all get a lot of emails and maybe we don't necessarily read every word of them, but seems like there's a lot in here that suggests that Jeff Luno had a pretty good idea about what was going on. Yeah, I think the the part of I don't think that you are wrong to say that this doesn't directly contradict like the facts as presented in the commissioner's report, but I I there is a a heavy dose um both written and implied in that report that like this is primarily the concoction of the players, but we've also decided not to discipline those players and I think that the extent of the front office's involvement which when we talked about the report and the sign stealing one of the many times that I got to say banging scheme on this podcast, you know, we were sort of incredulous that it could be as limited as it was. And I think that our skepticism is was well founded in that it probably would have been important. It was probably important for the extent of the front office's involvement to be more thoroughly disclosed than it was. And so I find that concerning um, yeah i doubt an alms bud person would make <laughs> such a mistake exactly yeah so if you read it carefully now knowing what jared reported the mlb report does call the banging scheme player right. driven and player executed right. and as far as we know that's still the case correct what Jared wrote here is essentially that Codebreaker was kind of the impetus for the banging scheme. So Codebreaker was in use for the first couple months maybe of the 2017 season. And the implication is that either Alex Cora, the Astros players, some combination of them thought, hey, this is pretty cool, but wouldn't it be nice if we knew the sign on every pitch instead of just some of them? And so let's find a way to extend this Codebreaker 
into a bigger scheme. And so the banging scheme grew out of this codebreaker scheme. And there's no evidence that Luna or the front office was involved in that evolution of the scheme. Again, you can believe what you will. And uh, it is certainly believable that maybe they knew something about it, but there's no evidence establishing that yet. So the banging scheme, player driven and player executed. The MLB report says that the attempt by the Astros replay review room staff to decode signs using the center field camera was originated and executed by lower level baseball operations employees working in conjunction with Astros players and Cora, which is essentially what this is saying. But also it does place Luno in the room when this intern was giving the PowerPoint presentation in late 2016. Luno said that he thought this was not something that would be happening in real time, that it would just be like after the game, it would be used to decode the signs, which I guess would not directly violate the rules. It might be kind of questionable, but uh, wouldn't be as egregious as in-game use. So again, you can decide whether that's credible because elsewhere in this report, Not only does it have the emails that the MLB report alluded to that Luna was copied on or were sent to him that mentioned this codebreaker scheme, and as it was referred to by other members of the Astros, or at least one other member of the Astros front office, the dark arts. Ah, read another book. <laughs> Did they really need to, like, if you want to hide this let's, stuff, yeah. would you call it Codebreaker and the let's, dark arts? Let's take a second here and <laughs> like talk about... At one point, it's called the system, which, okay, the system is vague enough, but Codebreaker? Dark arts? I understand that naming things is difficult. This is part of the reason I don't write fiction, especially science fiction, because coming up with nouns is hard. You come up with nouns for stuff, names for nouns, and you start to sound silly right away, right away, especially Mm -hmm. if you're in space, right? It's like, that's the egg lorp, and you're like, oh, gosh, no one's going to want to read this book (laughs) I just wrote. It's ridiculous. So I am sympathetic to the creative problem of coming up with proper nouns for stuff. But why are baseball people so bad at this? And why do they feel the need to name the stuff about their crimes after the crimes? Yes. You're trying to break your your name and your code breaking thing in a in a non in a in an easy way to break a code. You don't have a code for your code breaking thing. You're all about breaking codes and and now other people are going to break your code cuz you just named it code breaker. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. This is why people should take humanities courses. You spend all this time doing math and you can't come up with proper nouns for stuff. Although so, Manfred came up with banging scheme. Oh, that remains really it, so. great. That's just yeah. really great writing. But I'm just saying, take an English class. Don't, I mean, I'm actually saying don't cheat. Like that should be clear. I would prefer the people not cheat. But if you're just having to name things, around the house or the front office, take Mm -hmm. an English class, read some books, and do a better job. So that's a thing (laughs) I'll say. Yes. So also mentioned here, and this is coming from this guy who is the director of advanced information for the Astros, and by the way, still is employed in that capacity, according yeah, to their website, at least. <laughs> some of the things in this report make you wonder what, yeah. what that's about. <laughs> right. So this guy told MLB that Luna would giggle at the title at Codebreaker oh. and appeared excited about it. He also said that Luna sometimes entered the Astros video room during road games and made comments such as you guys code breaking <laughs> which which uh, 
like way uh, to keep it on the down low that's the way to do it you guys code breaking yeah so luno denied that and uh evidently he assembled a 170 page binder that called this guy's accusations into question here and so i don't know that guy i don't know to what degree he is a reliable witness there is uh another reference to a, a slack post here where that guy was evidently angling for an extension at some point in 2018 and almost seemed to be like blackmailing yeah, Luno he's, a little like, bit. Yeah, like, sent, <laughs> sent a slack that amounts to like, you know, I know like the secrets that yeah, made like, us a championship hey, team and yeah. <laughs> you'd hey, feel nice. better if they were in-house. <laughs> yeah, which is like the slack equivalent of like nice World Series you got here. It would be a shame if anything <laughs> yeah. happened to it. Yeah, exactly. So... <sighs> That's one of the odd things in here is that a lot of the people who were directly involved in this, according to this report, not just this director of advanced information, but also the manager of pro scouting analysis and the intern who was the one who reportedly originated this, who is now the senior manager of team operations. According to the Astros website, they're all still employed in those capacities, which... I wonder whether that will continue to be the case because I don't know how you could really keep them on if you're trying to, you know, get a new GM and a new manager and say that it's not a cultural problem and we're cleaning house, like to have a lot of the same people who are directly involved in this still in those positions. That seems like an untenable state of affairs, Uh, not calling for firings. I I don't have personal knowledge of this, but just in terms of the public perception, it certainly seems seems like. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's just like the the picture it paints of that front office is like you got Lou now walking in like he's in Midnight Cowboy. Like, you know, (laughs) you go, hey, I'm go breaking here. Anyway, like, I think that the part of this that, I mean, in addition to just giving sort of more specific form to our general skepticism of Lunau's account of all of this, the hubris involved here is just wild. Mm-hmm. It's wild stuff. And I do appreciate the points at which, you know, Lunau tries to assert some distance from this and several other people involved in the organization, you know, go to pains to make it hard for him to do that, right? Like the intern told investigators that he thought it was obvious that Lunau had to assume that this was going to happen real time in game because that's the value of it, right? That this as sort of like advanced scouting has significantly less value than being able to do this stuff in game Mm -hmm. dark arts like (laughs) i think that it just underscores that all human beings and i will include myself in this because i spent part of this podcast coming up with bad puns we should all just be less enamored with our own cleverness (laughs) uh, because it tends to obscure obvious moments of like hey are we doing the right thing we literally came up with a system that we're calling code breaker and dark arts but we should put this in email a bunch put it in writing as often as possible (laughs) Uh, and we should name it that and we should joke about it internally 
I will say, though, to to go back to your earlier point, the only really relatable part of this is getting too many emails that are too long and just <laughs> yes. being like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Right. Yeah. It, it mentions in here that uh, Luno had a reputation in the front office that if you didn't put pertinent information in the first page of any email, he might not see it, which uh, I guess is true for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> I, yeah. It doesn't absolve. I, and to be clear, no. I, I don't say that that absolves him of any responsibility in much the same way that it wouldn't absolve me of responsibility at Fangrass <laughs> if I you know, missed an important detail later on. But it was a relatable thing. Although I imagine based on the other information in this report that Lunau does not share my proclivity for waking up at three in the morning and worrying about having missed something. He seems yeah. to be free of that particular set of anxieties. Although many people might be free of my anxieties. So <laughs> yeah. just say. There's an email here from the director of events information in August 2017 where he says that the dark arts seem to be less productive because the league is aware of the reputation and they change their signs a lot, which uh, kind of falls in line with other things we've talked about. But another email here where Luno answered one of these dark arts emails and first just said, this is great, thanks. And then he said, how much of this stuff do you think Hinch is aware of, which which is interesting that uh, just goes to show that maybe they were a little bit worried about cluing Hinch into all of this or again, like not everyone was fully read into all of this at all times. Like the people in the video room were instigating it. It seemed like the intern was part of it. Luno was certainly aware of it, it seems like, or should have been aware of it or should have made sure that it wasn't happening, even if he wasn't aware of it and he didn't do any of those things. But not everyone was maybe equally well-versed in all of this. So, you know, I don't know whether everyone in the front office was aware of this or whether all of the people in baseball operations, it's certainly possible that it was somewhat localized or limited, but it's hard to say because, again, they weren't very shy about putting this stuff in writing. Yeah, I think that the best that you can say is that while it certainly does not absolve A.J. Hinch of responsibility, responsibility he was obviously aware of based on the property destruction he engaged in that it does suggest and this is consistent with some you know reporting that we've seen separate from those the banging scheme Mm -hmm. that the relationship between lunau and hinge was at times strained and you wonder how receptive to a change aj hinge maybe thought the rest of the organization would be which again does not absolve him from the responsibility of saying, hey, knock that off, right? but does perhaps help us to understand some of the atmosphere around the decision to break stuff but not say anything. Right. So. Yeah. And much was made of the fact that Hinch, in his MLB Network interview with Tom Verducci, Verducci asked him a question about buzzers mm-hmm. and whether buzzers were used. And Hinch just, uh, he didn't really deny it explicitly. He essentially said that the MLB report investigated and didn't find any of that stuff. So he didn't categorically deny it, which some people, I think, 
took to be suspicious and evidence that maybe there is more to this story could also be just that he is not entirely sure what was or wasn't happening at this point and that he doesn't want to be on record saying it absolutely didn't happen because I suppose there is some possibility that it could have happened without his knowledge. If certain things were happening without his knowledge, then who knows what else was happening without his knowledge, which again doesn't absolve him of anything, but it's it's one possible interpretation of that non-answer. Yeah. I just have like this image of Mark Ruffalo in in um, <laughs> spotlight. Spotlight, they knew. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So again, like nothing here dramatically changes my understanding of what was happening or what its effectiveness was, but it definitely does present the front office involvement in a different light than the MLB report did, and I don't know what Manfred's motivation for omitting these details was. I don't know how much of Jared's report came from the letter Manfred sent and how much came from his own unique reporting, but right. seems like Manfred was aware of all of this. And when he alluded to the emails in that report that Luno received, he clearly knew that a lot of this was going on. And a lot of this was testimony that was provided to MLB by these baseball operations employees. So I don't know if he just thought, well, I will present the big picture findings here and we'll punish everyone and I'm suspending Luno so we don't need to get all the dirty details out in public. Like, it's part of a pattern maybe where MLP is sort of happy to have this go away as quickly as possible, which has not succeeded at all, obviously. But like, you know, MLP seemed to have some inkling that this stuff was going on before Mike Fires came forward, before the athletic report they were not going to blow it up into a big public story themselves if they could help it. So throughout this whole process, MLB has essentially responded to the public reports. And when something comes to light, then they say, all right, we're on the case. And if it doesn't come to light, then they're probably not going to be the ones to bring it to light. So maybe Manfred just figured, I will discipline the guy and we will report the big picture. This is what was happening, but without all the he said this and he said that and this is when that happened but i think take it in conjunction with the report this definitely makes luno's denials look even less credible yeah i th- i suspect that the desire to be done was probably what motivated it because i do think that it reads I don't know that it credibly reads differently, but I think that you can sort of allow yourself to say, oh, well, this was a this was a couple of competitive and highly motivated players and they came up with a banging scheme and that's fun to say. Mm-hmm. So now they're all sp- – well, not all of them, but you know, some of them have been spread to other organizations. But we we got it. We got it sorted out. It was low tech. It was not. It was not sort of something that could be systematized. Reads very differently if you know from sort of the top to the bottom, an entire front office or parts of a front office, more than just the GM, but. A, you know, analysts and individuals who are still part of the organization were really putting their full um, sort of intellectual might behind something like this. So I think it makes it a lot harder to say, well, eh, 
Yeah, and the guy who's now the Astros manager of pro scouting analysis told MLB that there was no effort to hide the use of Codebreaker in front of Luno when he visited the video sure. room, that it was even something that they would have maybe drawn attention to to show that they were doing something, and Luno denied seeing any evidence of that. I, I guess it's it's hard to prove short of Luno absolutely acknowledging in an email something about Codebreaker or the Dark Arts, which it seemed like he was somewhat careful not to do. Like, he got the emails, he opened the emails. I guess you can't prove that he read the emails in their entirety. But when you put that together with uh, all these things that the other people were saying about them thinking that he was aware of it or his references to it, it paints a, a pretty condemnatory picture. So Yeah. I mean, I just think that he's kind of full of it anyway, but I also think that it doesn't hang together when you when you think about one of the organizing principles of that era of Astros baseball being we know a lot more than other people. We have Mm -hmm. figured stuff out that other people have not, and that puts us in a position of competitive advantage for him to then turn around and say, except for this, uh, you know, thing that my employees did where they figured out how to do the signs and they named it Codebreaker in a very obvious way. It strains credulity. Mm -hmm. It does not read as believable that the efficiency guy, the know-all-the-stuff guy, would not mm-hmm. know about this when yeah. he sat in the room and heard a presentation and then got copied on a bunch of emails and also did a Midnight Cowboy impression. Yep. Yeah, and just the way that this makes clear that the banging scheme was an outgrowth of this previous scheme, I think. That is important because, yes, yes, the banging scheme was player-driven and player-executed seemingly, but it likely would not have happened. It's not necessarily something that the players would have concocted on their own if there wasn't already this partial system in place that gave them the idea to go beyond that. So in that sense, doesn't make the players any less guilty for what they did, but it does, I guess make that link to the front office a little clearer than I I think it was for most people in the MLB report, even though it was somewhat acknowledged in there. Yeah. And I also think that it lends some credence to the idea that if you were a player on that team, and again, I agree with you, I'm not saying this to absolve anyone of responsibility, but if you were a player on that team and you were presented with a system and an approach that the front office had concocted and then you were improving upon it, you might sit there and say, well, this is like, this is what we do here, mm-hmm. you know, which doesn't make it any less egregious or change it from cheating to non-cheating. But I think it does speak to an institutional culture where there was a lot of room for shenanigans and that it would have taken something more significant than just just, hey, I'm going to break these monitors and then people will know what I mean Mm -hmm. to really stamp it out. So I think that it colors that progression in a pretty important way and in a meaningfully different way than what we've seen so far. Mm -hmm. Did you see on Friday, I think it was Friday, that Charlie Morton, perhaps it was yesterday, again, what day is it, Ben? (laughs) Who are we? When, When is it? 
When is it? (laughs) But in the last couple of days, Charlie Morton was asked about this and I think took the most direct responsibility that I've seen anyone who was affiliated with that team take that he knew it was happening. He confirmed that it was happening and that he should have said something to prevent it from continuing. Uh Uh, I was like, hey, Charlie, what makes me like you, friend? Makes me Mm -hmm. like you a little bit, pal. So it's not that hard to say you're sorry. We've already done almost a full episode before we get to the episode, (laughs) so I will just, uh, I don't have much to say about this, but completing the weird news trifecta of (laughs) the past few days was that the Mets sale, which was supposedly Steve Cohen, the hedge fund billionaire who owns, I think, 8% of the Mets and was going to take over 80% of the Mets, is now not going to do that. That sale is off, and It's not entirely clear why the deal fell apart. There were reports that originally Cohen was supposed to take over control after a a period of years, and it seems like maybe he thought he was going to take over control sooner than the Wilpons thought he was going to take over control. There was also some reporting that maybe he tried to restructure the finances of the deal, so it's not entirely clear whose fault this is, if it's either party's fault, but this sale is now not happening, and it seems like the Mets will still be pursuing a sale to someone else and I guess some Mets fans are disappointed because they want anyone other than the Wilpons to be running this team and Steve Cohen at least does have money so there's that he has uh, many billions of dollars but he also has a shady past of his own and he is uh, said to be the inspiration for Bobby Axelrod on Billions which kind of tells you all you need to know his hedge fund was uh, found guilty or pled guilty to insider trading and was fined billions of dollars in a a big case years ago and he wasn't able to manage outside money for a couple years as part of that settlement so maybe that is not necessarily the guy you want taking over your baseball team unless the alternative is the Wilpon. So I don't know, maybe there is a better option who is uh, neither of those parties that the Mets will find. It is a very strange reality and phenomena of modern baseball fandom that you sit there and hope for better billionaires. <laughs> yeah. It's just <laughs> a weird, it's just a weird bit of business. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's that, I guess. And we will now take a quick break and we'll be back to talk to Sahadev about the Cubs, another team that said so no negative news about them this offseason. It's just all sunshine and rainbows. We'll be back in just a moment. It's time to talk Cubs, and we are joined by Sahadev Sharma, who is the lead Cubs writer for The Athletic Chicago and just touched down in Arizona, where he will be covering Cubs spring training. Hey, Sahadev. Hi, thanks for having me on, guys. Happy to have you. So, with some teams, when we do these team previews, they are still busy making moves, and... 
with other teams, we probably could have done them a few months ago. And <laughs> at least in terms of transactions, things wouldn't have been all that different. And the Cubs are kind of in that boat. And maybe they've been doing some things behind the scenes, as you've written about, and we will ask you about that. But in terms of the major moves, there just haven't been a lot. And I'm reading now from Jordan Bastion's BP annual essay for the Cubs this year. He notes the large free agent deals and the core's rising arbitration costs have strangled the budget, limiting the team's flexibility. And I know Cubs fans are sick of hearing this, but they heard it an awful lot because it seems like the Cubs have used finances as a reason for not making many moves. And even if they want to go get a reliever, it has to be approved and there's no flexibility. So to what degree is this true? How did we get into this situation? And how should Cubs fans be thinking about this? Should they think, oh, all right, then there's no room in the budget? Or should they be angry and carrying pitchforks, as I assume <laughs> that they are? I never tell Cubs fans how to feel if they want to be upset. <laughs> I completely understand where that anger comes from. If you're the type of fan that says, what is this? Why are billionaires trying to save you know a few million here and there? I get it. I get the frustration. I get why you'd want a team like the Cubs to be in on big not only just the big names that are available via free agency but even just like to fill obvious holes with players who would cost just a few million or you know 10 million a year that they can't do that they haven't been able to do that the last two off seasons I think that's really where it gets down to being really frustrating for Cubs fans is that uh, it's two off seasons in a row obviously flawed roster has not been upgraded when there are clear ways to address those flaws via free agency and there has hasn't been that big trade and and for someone like me I've been hearing not only what Theo Epstein says publicly but behind the scenes what people have been saying with the Cubs is they've they've kind of expected a trade uh, from maybe not a Chris Bryant level trade but of the prospects of the core that's starting to get expensive by arbitration they expected it over the past few off seasons it's been talked about for years that uh, they were kind of headed down this road with once they kind of realized the system wasn't where it needed to be uh, after all these graduations of these highly touted players I think they kind of saw the writing on the wall that they didn't have the cost controlled player coming up uh, right behind them and they were going to have to kind of shake things up if things didn't change quickly so why it's happening I, I kind of touched on it right there with the lack of prospects in the system but it's it's specifically because of the pitching that they, they haven't developed any pitching through the system in this Theo Epstein regime, the, you know, Jason McLeod, Jed Hoyer, since they've been here since, uh, what was it? The first season was 2012, if I'm remembering correctly. I may be remembering incorrectly, uh, <laughs> but that's uh, that's how I remember it. And it, they, they have not developed a single pitcher and they've spent money on pitching. I mean, John Lester was obviously a good investment. You win a World Series with him leading your rotation along with Jake Arrieta. That makes sense. You Darvish is another huge contract in that rotation. Uh, they, they just have had a lot of money in the rotation, and that wasn't always the plan. That wasn't how it was supposed to go. They were supposed to be able to fill in at least one of these holes, but someone that they 
brought through the system and it hasn't happened. So that's really set them back. And now there's a, kind of a debate of whether are they trying to get below the luxury tax? Or are they not? It seems like it, by all accounts that that's what they're trying to do. Reset the luxury tax. Uh, they're only slightly above it right now. There's a, you know, there's a, a variety of moves that could be made from big to, you know, a little bit minor, a little more minor, but there are ways to do it. And, and I would be surprised if, unless they're competing come July, if they're not, uh, if that's not still a goal over the next few months. Well, let's get one of those big moves and another source of consternation sort of out of the way, which is that Brian, Chris Bryant obviously lost his grievance. The Cubs know how long they have him for. They know exactly how much money he's going to make this year. I guess I have two questions, the first of which is, what is your sense of sort of the state of the relationship between Bryant and the organization as it stands right now? It's obviously been contentious, especially in this last little bit. And then what do you, if you had to, if you had to put a percentage on it, because I am an unkind person and I'm making you, what do you think the odds are that Bryant is on this roster come October? Or is the sort of certainty around how much time there is until his free agency going to result in him getting moved i'll answer that that second part first since uh since it's fresh in my head right now i would say i mean percentage wise i'd say below 50 percent that he's on the roster by october but that's because i have a strong feeling that by july this team is going to be at a point where theo epstein wants to be aggressive in moving pieces not acquiring pieces so it, it really does depend on that if it was if you asked me before the season started if that was the deadline, I'd be a little, you know, I, I would lean towards like 90% because I always lean against a move happening. But I just have a feeling that they're not going to be good good enough this year. And Theo's going to see it and he's going to take that opportunity to kind of reset and don't think like rebuild, but think about uh, the Yankees in 2016. I think that's the model he would like to follow in an ideal world. Obviously, much, uh, much easier said than done. The relationship, I don't think it's terrible i don't even think it's really bad i would say that you know when when chris bryant realized his service time was being gamed and he wasn't going to make the roster out of spring training all those years ago in 2015 I, I think that kind of set him up for realizing just how much of a business this was he he understands what's going on he doesn't love it but he knows it's not just a, a it, it's not something that only the cubs do and he knows why they do it. And he thinks it's very unfair. He thinks it's very obvious why it's being done. I, I talked to him last uh, spring about other players at a time when we thought guys like Eloy Jimenez and and Fernando Tatis and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Before all those got resolved in various ways, he was. we all assumed that those guys were going to start in the minors, and, and he was already annoyed by it and, and kind of just kind of spoke out and said, this is ridiculous, it's been happening for years, and we know why it's happening, and, and it's kind of obvious how they're doing it, and they and they get away with it. So yeah, he's, he's part, he's their re union representative. He needs to be vocal about it. I, I think the reason this went to agreements isn't because Chris Bryant is unhappy with the Cubs. It's because he knows he's the perfect case to if they're if they ever had a shot to win it, 
or to really make headlines. At least they make headlines and made it more of a story by doing this, uh, made more people aware of the unfair system. So I think they they slightly accomplished their goal there. I, I don't think they ever went into it expecting to win. But if you look at his history, what he's been from the top, from a high draft pick to minor league player of the year, Golden Spikes winner, minor league player of the year, rookie of the year, MVP, that's the perfect case to bring to the table if you're ever going to if you're ever going to fight this that they didn't win just shows that you know what we're going to have to go through in whatever a year and a half from now when this CBA is up so the Cubs are about to launch a regional sports network marquee sports network they're no longer on WGN as they have been for the past 70 years or so how does that affect the experience of following the Cubs for Cubs fans if at all and how might it affect the team's financial resources Financially, we'll see. Behind the scenes, it seems like it's being put together pretty well, which I think would surprise some people because I I think a lot of people expected this to be a mess because it took so long to kind of finalize and figure out. It doesn't sound like it's, it's being run haphazardly behind the scenes and that they're going to try and put out, it sounds like they're going to put out a pretty quality product. The biggest issue, in my opinion, is is who's going to get to see it. They're expecting Comcast slash Xfinity to to agree to a deal before the season starts. Maybe not before, I want to say, February 22nd is the first spring training game, and that's when Marquee goes live. I don't think they expect Xfinity to, to jump on board by then, but they do expect them before the season. If they don't, that's a huge chunk of the Chicago and Chicagoland market that's not going to be able to watch Cubs games. I think there's the standard blackout issues as well that, it, you know, marquee isn't available in certain areas at all. And, and like the, it just won't be, it'll be blacked out for some reason. I've, I've seen these uh, issues pop up already. People calling their cable companies in those random towns in Iowa or wherever it may be. And they still, they're, they're blacked out for whatever reason it is. So I, I don't know how all that's going to work out exactly. It's going to be interesting to follow that, see who's blocked out, what percentage, of fans that were able to watch the Cubs over the years are now suddenly struggling to to find the Cubs or even unable to watch them. So I think it, it in the long run, though, this has a chance to be a pretty big moneymaker. The problem is you don't have that upfront money when you sign a deal. When, when you sign a deal with a big cable company, there's that upfront money and and then the Cubs may like if that happened in you know November, maybe we're talking about a different offseason. I don't know. I don't know if that's the case or not. I do know that they don't have money coming in from Marquee right now. They expect to by everything I'm hearing. It sounds like it's going to go well. It's all about the the team now performing and them being able to sell that product. But I think it, it could be a pretty nice moneymaker if, if all, all things go right. We can perhaps transition to the rotation for a moment because I think this has been a source of consternation, but also potential hope for the coming season for Cubs fans. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about you, Darvish. So the first half of his season last year went quite a bit worse than his second half did. And I'm curious, what what has changed for you and what are your expectations for him going into to 2020? Are, are Cubs fans going to be happy? I I expect big things. He seemed like a different, I'll start with just like the intangible quality. He seemed like a different person, especially over the course of the year. Uh, Spring training, he was much more open with us. First of all, he wasn't using a translator. He stopped using a translator. It's much easier for us to get to know a person when when we're both speaking the same language. He seemed very comfortable with the media. He was making jokes constantly, much more confident 
felt comfortable. I think all that stuff really matters a lot. And the biggest thing was he was healthy. He came into the season. He didn't really, he wasn't 100% sure he was healthy. He kind of was holding back on certain things. The fastball wasn't where it needed to be at zero command of his fastball. At some point, he kind of gained the confidence and realized, hey, if, I, if I'm going to turn this corner, I have to have more confidence in my fastball. His walk rate was terrible. I don't know how many starts into the season, maybe five, but I want to say his walk rate was pushing 20%. It was it was rough to watch. It looked like it was just a disastrous contract, and and that this was going to get pretty ugly. And it, he didn't lose it. That he didn't lose his confidence. That he knew he was close. I think was pretty big for him. Somewhere along the line, the the fastball command came back. It led to a home run spike, but the walk rate was just was minute. It was non-existent. I want to say in the second half, it was uh, below five, maybe below 4%. It was really low. He had he had some pretty crazy strikeout to walk numbers in the second half. He rediscovered his splitter. He started using... He, he has so many pitches, and he really started using them. I talked to the Cubs uh, pitching coaches, and, and they, were, they were all really excited about how he looked. And you just watch it, the, the swing and miss... The strikeout numbers, those are things that I would say Cubs haven't really had since Arietta. Someone that you know can just rack up strikeouts. And that was just that, you know, for like a season and a half with Arietta, where he was a dominant swing and miss guy. He kind of lost that towards the end with the, with the Cubs. So the Cubs haven't seen this in a long time, if ever. I expect him to be in Cy Young contention. I really do. I think he's what we saw in the second half was him truly harnessing all his his potential in the sense that he knew how to use his pitches he was confident in all of them uh there were no aches or pains no mental blocks all of it was working for him i i think the one thing is even he's already admitted this he said at the cubs convention he wants to see how he starts because he's always had bad starts with the cubs it's two years right but one was injury one was kind of recovering from injury in a sense i'd like to see how he does in march and april i i expect him to come out of the gate strong and really be a, a leader of this rotation and and a bright spot for the team in general what about craig kimbrell obviously a disastrous last season but he had the delayed signing and injuries and maybe one was related to the other is there a hope a reasonable expectation that given a normal spring training and start to the season that he might bounce back or is there still a lot of concern surrounding him there's definitely a hope that the reason he struggled last year was because of uh, no spring training, signing in June, all those things factored in a weird ramp up to the season for him. Uh, They believe that that's the main thing. Well, I think Theo's words were, if you look at all the evidence, that's a pretty obvious reason. You know, that's the first thing you point to. But he also admitted you can't rule out that there are other that there were other issues, whatever they may be, whether it be compensation because his elbow or something was barking and and the mechanics were out of whack or just injuries in general or just, you know, he's he's on the downslope of his career. There were signs that there's a reason, you know, outside of free agency being a mess that that offseason there. There was a lot of talk that he was on the downswing of his career anyways, and there were signs, there were velocity dip, walk rate jump. All these things were concerns. I don't think last year, last year was pretty extreme. I, I, I'm i going off purely memory here, and I think he gave up nine home runs, and I think that was a career high 
for him. I know he gave up a career high home runs and he pitched half a season and he he was on the DL twice or injury list twice. So it, it was just a pretty insane performance as far as how poor it was at times. Uh, there were some jaw dropping moments. One in particular, I remember it was a Saturday against the Cardinals where that was the weekend the Cubs basically lost all hope in the division. They entered the series, you know, within shouting distance of the Cardinals. And by the end of the weekend, it was a four game set. They had been swept. Uh, I believe every game was a one run game. <laughs> the Cubs had just taken the lead in this game that I'm recalling the first two pitches that Kimbrell gives up in a, in a saver back to back home runs on uh, two pitches. And that, that just kind of sums up how his season was. And the, the game swung right there, went from a one run lead to a one run deficit. The Cubs lost that game. It was basically season over after that. He did not perform in high leverage moments at all. I, I there are these numbers that I have that Their high leverage performance in general was dreadful over the course of the season, especially down the stretch. The relievers didn't deliver. He's a big part of that. If they're going to be a good team, it's essential that he comes back and he's at least close to a dominant pitcher because they they really need some stability in that bullpen. Because if you look at it right now, you're not going to recognize very many of those names. There's a ton of talent there, and we know how bullpens are volatile, but those aren't names that you're, most people are going to be familiar with. You don't think that Jeremy Jeffress is going to have a bounce back <laughs> that propels them to victory? We'll see. <laughs> That's a, they're going to need that and more. <laughs> I'd like to, to spend a second on sort of the coaching side. Obviously, the Cubs find themselves with a new manager this year and David Ross. And I'm curious just sort of what your expectations are there, not only in terms of how he might differ as an on-field technician, but also what his relationship looks to be like with the front office you know it's always hard to quantify these things but managerial shifts are you know a moment for reflection and I imagine there are going to be some differences here but um, the front office is largely intact so I don't know how uh, dramatic those are going to be yeah I think as far as working with the front office this should be a better relationship than it was with Madden. And I'm not saying it was some terrible relationship with Madden. I would say that they didn't always see eye to eye, especially towards the end there. There were some directions that the front office wanted to go that, you know, Joe has an established track record. I understand why he'd want to push back if if he doesn't see it that way. But Ross has been part of this front office for two years. He is Theo's handpicked guy to be the manager. He's someone that Theo identified maybe a decade ago as a future manager. And and it's I, I think that's probably the one thing that Theo doesn't really have on his resume of like finding a manager that's never had a job before and and being that guy that can identify the next great manager. Yeah, Francona was a great hire, of course, uh, but he'd had a you know he'd been a manager before. Obviously, Madden was well established. The previous managers with the Cubs didn't work out. So I think that's the one thing that Theo really wants, and this is his handpicked guy. It's all right now. This team is all on Theo. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot that you look at that his imprint is on this front office. It's on this roster, and now it's on the coaching staff. 
have, especially the man in charge. So I, I don't know what Ross is going to be like in game. I'm curious to see how he does. Uh, one thing that he's never had to deal with from the media is criticism because he was the backup catcher for much of his career. He was never expected to perform on the field. He was just great with us. He was a great, he, he did a great job of talking to us after losses, after wins, whatever it was, he can, you know, he, he was always great with the media, but he didn't, we weren't coming to him and saying, hey man, that was your fault that this team lost, whatever, you know, obviously we wouldn't say it that way, but I'm just saying he never faced criticism. He's going to, there are going to be times where we question a, a pitching move or something like that. I think he's going to, after just the the general feel I have for him after, you know, a handful of interviews since he's been manager, I think he's going to be okay. I think he's going to be able to handle the media criticism. I think he's going to, I think he's going to pick his moments when he may kind of go off on us. And I think it'll be strategically. I think he knows what he's doing as far as motivation, handling the media, behind the scenes stuff. They've talked a lot about him catching up on the in-game stuff, working a lot with with R&D. They, they know that that's where he, he doesn't have that experience. It's a uh, player to two years in the front office along with broadcasting and, and now manager. So there's a lot that he needs to, to learn as far as being a in-game strategist. I guess it was uh, three years away from the game, right? It, it was three years, three seasons where he wasn't playing. I'm curious to see what he does. They, they talk a lot about him working hand in hand with R&D, a lot about collaboration, about working together, him having Andy Green by his side and how that relationship is building. I don't know. Right now it's all words. So I'm very curious to see how it all unfolds and, and what kind of manager he actually is. He'll have to develop a, a signal for us when he's engaged in a strategic going off against the media, <laughs> like pull on your ear, or wiggle your nose or something so we know not to worry about you. <laughs> and Theo has alluded to the Cubs falling into a winner's trap, he called it, essentially that things went so well for them that their rebuild just went perfectly according to plan and that maybe they got kind of complacent in some ways. And he talked about accountability and organizational restructuring, and some of that has happened behind the scenes, and you've written about it. And as you noted, they have been one of the worst, if not the worst teams when it comes to developing pitching. And yes, maybe that's partly because they targeted and prioritized position players in the draft, which worked out well, but they really have not been able to supplement that core position players with pitchers. So what have they done from a hiring perspective, front office perspective, player development perspective to try to address that deficiency? Yeah, it's it's pretty massive as far as when you really look at it on paper, all the changes that they've made. I, I know fans will some fans are I, I get they're they're gonna they're gonna be suspect about these changes, whether they matter or not, but I think they're pretty significant. Player development is completely different. They shifted Matt Dory from amateur scouting to player development. I don't think that's a huge change. I think Matt Dory's a really good leader and he knows how to delegate. I think the keys are the hires of Justin Stone as director of hitting and Craig Breslow is director of pitching. Two progressive minds. I mean, Ben, you've written a book on, on all the changes that are going on in player development. That's what they're bringing uh, to the table here. The Not only the tech, but the people that know how to use that tech, how to incorporate that data, how to actually teach it, make it usable information, not just here's a bunch of interesting you know, data and images that we got from high-speed cameras. Actually know how to put that into action and, and develop, uh, u- utilize that in a fashion that makes these players better it sounds like both of them have have really you know 
really jumped all in on this and and they're really making a lot of changes they're new coaches uh, uh it's a new pitching structure there's no uh, minor league pitching coordinator there it's much more specific than uh, than that like everybody has a specific task a specific group of pitchers or players to work with it's it's really fascinating i'm curious to see how that unfolds on the amateur side they hired dan kantrovitz who was with the a's i believe he, he was assistant gm with the a's and and he's now vp of scouting he just really wanted to get back into being in charge of drafts and and running the draft room uh so he's back in charge of that he's he was with the cardinals before the a's had a ton of success if you look at his his history he's had a ton of success drafting pitchers so it's pretty obvious why he was brought in there there wasn't a ton of change in the amateur scouting uh but i i expect him to bring in uh people over the course of time as he gets to know his staff better he did lose a couple you know quality amateur scouts shane farrell is now the amateur scouting director in toronto and sam hughes is a longtime scout has been with the cubs for as long as i can remember he went to the yankees he's a national cross checker so quality amateur scouts that they lost but i i think they're kind of re revamping the entire system everything is is going to be very different the way they run things R&D is going to be uh, that they talk about how uh, Theo has said a lot, how he's really built out R&D and and it's robust and they really want to lean on R&D and make sure that they utilize uh, that side of things. So uh, I I don't I I think it's fascinating. I think it's really uh, it's obviously stuff that's working for different organizations. And when you talk about the winner's trap, what happened here, I think it's something that Theo has had in the back of his mind that he would have liked to have done earlier. He didn't he didn't pull the trigger until this uh, offseason or late last season because uh, I think he he really needed to convince himself that it was the right move and and that making these drastic changes was for the best of the organization. And, and you know, they've, they'd had success doing things their way, uh, but it had been long enough and there was enough uh, evidence to suggest that they needed to change it up. So on the Major League roster, where are the areas where they really didn't do a whole lot to address some obvious weakness this offseason? Not, you know, of course, uh, they could have gone and signed Garrett Cole or something. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about areas where they didn't even really sign a mid-level guy who would have just upgraded from below average to average even, let's say. Yeah, well, I mean, Theo pretty much came out at the end of the season and said the main holes, especially on offense, were second base and center field. It's really hard to find a center fielder. I'll never rip them for not going out and finding the next great center fielder because I don't, I couldn't even off the top of my head tell you what center fielders were available this offseason. Nobody that was going to completely drastically change the roster. And not like the second basemen were great but they were there were quality upgrades available like cesar hernandez who i think signed for around five million eric sogard a similar similar numbers they couldn't afford those guys they they couldn't even pay someone uh five six million a year uh to upgrade an obvious area that that theo came out and said was a weakness uh so those are two areas that they really need to they need people to step up and perform Ian Happ's going to have to step up in center field Nico Horner and whoever else is going to David Bodie Daniel Descalso they're all going to have to step up and perform at second base the bullpen as I mentioned is really hard to look at and say yep that's good they're going to be fine there I I will say I've talked to enough people there that there's a ton of talent 
There's a, there are things that they believe that they can maximize certain pitchers uh, because they have a, a skill set that they're like, you know what, if we do it like this and the guy stays healthy and we put him in the pitch lab and we see this, blah, 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 all that stuff, they, they believe there's something there with some of these guys. They they had Rowan Wick last year, Kyle Ryan, and Brad Wick, three guys nobody knew of before the season started, all performed rather well. Rowan Wick, they believe, is a legitimate high-leverage reliever. Kyle Ryan is solid lefty that's going to get you weak contact. Brad Wick, you know, it was two months. It was really impressive from a lefty. I don't know if they are all in that that's legit. But he's a tall guy who needs to repeat his mechanics. If they can get two more guys like like that and Kimbrel to bounce back and, and Jeffress to be solid, then it's all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's a, that's a good bullpen. And, and that happens. I'm not ruling it out, but it, there's so many question marks there. And then fifth starter is a big question, too. They're, they're locked in with their first four starters. But we'll see if it's Tyler Chatwood, if it's Alec Mills, Colin Ray is up for that as well, and, and Jarrell Cotton. But I think Ray and Cotton are more depth, and Mills and Chatwood, who you can't – Mills is out of options, and Chatwood, obviously, they're not trading. I mean, they're not – they can't send down – Maybe he gets traded because of that $13 million remaining, but he's not going to be a salary dump in my mind. He's a guy that they value, that they think they found something with at the end of last year. If you look at his pitch usage, his curveball went skyrocketed towards the end of the year. He had some of the best swing and miss numbers he's ever had in August and September. So I think they believe they, at worst, they have a high leverage reliever in Chatwood for the year. So we'll we'll see what, what they can do there but there are plenty of question marks I, I think Theo said it best he said we're, we're not whistling past the graveyard here we know we're carrying more risk than than we'd ideally like to have uh, it's it's clear to see look at the roster I, I just named it all they need things to go perfectly right if thing if one thing goes wrong it's going it could be a very ugly season well as long as they're not whistling to pass signs that's okay I guess <laughs> so well we're about to talk about the Diamondbacks and they traded for Starling Marte who could have been an option in center field, I guess, but Certainly. he doesn't make the league minimum. So I guess yeah. <laughs> that puts him out of the, the Cubs price range. Sorry, Cubs fans. So given those weaknesses that we just touched on and the way that things have to go right in a lot of areas, what are you projecting for a 2020 win total? Now I'm, I, I think I already have my prediction out there and I'm just going to stick with it. I, mm-hmm. It's either 85 or 86. I just, I just know I, I said they're going to have more than last year. And if I like, I believe they were at 84 last year. I'll mm-hmm. I'll say 86 just to have a solid number out there. I think that's that's good for third place, maybe second place in the division. I don't think it gets you the wild card. I, I really think and and my real if we want to get really detailed here, I believe that they have a better second half that they sell off in the first half. You know, guys like Chatwood would be available. A guy like Kimbrell would make a lot of sense to trade. Uh, guys who are at the end, near the end of their contracts, Bryant obviously makes sense. Uh, different guys that are coming up uh, on, you know, either a year or two away from free agency, I think could make sense to trade. And with what Theo wants to do, I could see them bringing in players who will help them in the second half. And, and you know, some younger guys that can actually help the roster and, and maybe they have a hot second half and, and they get to a, a, a place of respectability. But you know, that's just, I think that would be Theo's ideal plan too. Uh, if they're not going to contend, he wants to, he wants to, he keeps bringing it up how they haven't had that shot to every year their collapse comes in September instead of coming in July. If those collapses come in July, 
maybe we're talking about a different team, a different roster, a different organization that is on the up instead of is this the end of that, you know, that playoff run with this core? So, yeah, on that topic, last question, I know you said that you don't tell Cubs fans how to feel, but how do you think they feel about the trajectory of this team that I think a lot of people saw as a possible dynasty? It's funny, like if they had had these seasons in a different order, then you could imagine that the mood might be much more positive, right? Because they, they went from last place team to team that got to the NLCS and then 103 win team storybook season win the World Series etc and they haven't been bad since then but it's been all downhill from there as it almost had to be and so if they had had some of these you know make the wild card game seasons before they had the the big 103 win crescendo then maybe this would have been seen as more of a success instead of something of a letdown so does that 2016 season in the championship just give them a a grace period and is there any way that Cubs fans will sort of revolt because uh, I know that even in some of their down years they draw three million fans so what's the mood right now and and how great is the disappointment about the aftermath of that championship well I think we will see you know crowds down in size during cold weather but it won't like but once summer hits you'll see the crowds pick back up that's just how it is at Wrigley very rarely does it get it is is Wrigley empty in July even if it's a bad team it just doesn't happen I want to say the 2014 season was the first time you started to see like dwindling numbers that they were they were still sold out but actually a ton of empty seats uh, by you know July and August which was weird to see and of course 2015 happened and everything changed I think the general tenor is going to be a little bit of indifference that's how it felt at Cubs convention there wasn't that excitement or any buzz I didn't sense a lot of anger a couple questions where people were a little annoyed by things there's obviously a subset of people that uh, you know that I notice on Twitter that are really angry I'd say the anger spread, though. A lot of people are angry at ownership for not spending. A lot of people are angry at Theo for uh, not building a better system and, and spending money poorly. I'm using air quotes there. I, I don't know. I, I think in general, it's uh, unless they get off to a hot start, it's going to be rather indifferent and people are going to be checked out. And if, if they're talking about baseball in Chicago, it's going to be about the White Sox. All right. Well, on that note, you can read Sahadev's coverage of the Cubs all season long at The Athletic Chicago. You can find him on Twitter at his name, Sahadev Sharma. Thank you very much as always. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Okay. We'll take a quick break now and we'll be back in a moment with Nick Picoro to discuss the Diamondbacks. Okay, we're back, and to talk Diamondbacks baseball, we are joined, as we often are, by Nick Coro, Diamondbacks beat writer for the Arizona Republic and AZ Central Sports. Hey, Nick, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me back. So before we talk about 2020, maybe we can do a brief 
2019 in review because the Diamondbacks ended up fielding a very competitive team, being one of the best non-playoff teams in baseball, and they did that despite losing or trading away a lot of their most valuable players from 2018. So Paul Goldschmidt was their most valuable player from that team. They traded him away. Zach Greinke was second. They traded him away midseason. Patrick Corbin was third. He left via free agency. And then moving down the list, A.J. Pollock also left via free agency. Goes on and on. And yet the Diamondbacks got better. They won more games than they had the previous years. So what was the secret to Diamondbacks sort of rebuilding, retooling on the fly without actually getting worse? They seem to have maintained their competitiveness without doing the teardown that a lot of other franchises have done. Yeah, it was a good little magic trick. And they uh, they could have even been better, actually. I, I think that their Pythag had them at 88 wins instead of 85 wins. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know. It it, it didn't totally make sense, uh, even <laughs> if you're there watching it. I mean, obviously, Cattell Marte's breakout was a, a really huge part of it. That guy was just amazing um, yeah. and, you know, did it at a new position, relatively new to him um, in for, mu- for much, of the, much of the season in center field. But uh, yeah, I mean, they were a better team after the deadline, after trading Zach Greinke than they were before it. Because really for you know, most of the first four, four and a half months, they were just about a 500 team. They caught fire there in late August, early September, and and won, I want to say, 10 out of 11 to kind of really thrust themselves into the conversation. And then they lost, I think, six in a row and kind of fell out of it again. But yeah, I mean, it was, like I said, it was mostly driven, I think, by Cattell. I mean, there were some other nice little, little you know, happenings during the year. Carson Kelly, you know, really emerged and showed himself to be a capable big leaguer. Luke Weaver as well, you know, pitched really well when he was healthy before going down. And I think uh, I think Zach Gallen is another guy that you have to point to. Uh, he came over at the deadline in a separate trade from the Granky deal and continued to do with the Diamondbacks what he had been doing uh, with the Marlins. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, it was it was pretty impressive. I mean, Christian Walker essentially matched Paul Goldschmidt's numbers in in a lot yeah. of ways, and they just kind of they kind of managed to to find all of the answers to the to the things that they lost. I mean, look, they weren't they weren't the team that they had been in 2017, and they weren't really the team that they had been for the majority of 2018, because really that was a year where they were very good until September. I think they were a first place team on the first of every month of the season. And then really fell apart in September in 2018. But yeah, it, it shows uh, it it shows how you know how solid of a job Mike Hazen's been doing, you know, managing to kind of toe that line between you know contending and uh, continuing to build for the future. I think there are a lot of places that we can kind of go with with this team. So maybe the best place to start is with that some of those young additions to the rotation. So I'm curious. Obviously, there's this sort of looming question of his health, which we can get to in a second. But like, what changed for Luke Weaver um, after 2018? I know he started throwing his cutter more, and that helped his curveball play. But we did seem to see a pretty significant step forward from him. And I'm curious what your expectations are for him this year, and then how those expectations might be compromised potentially by his health and sort of I'm curious what the current state of his health is I know he came back for that one start I believe at the end of the year and then he really got shut down but kind of what's the what's the current state of affairs with Luke Weaver and how has he managed to take this step forward yeah well starting with what he did last year the offseason before he worked really hard on on improving his curveball he bought a Rapsodo and tried to 
to you know just tweak it and find something that worked and make it a better pitch. I, I actually thought though that that it was the it was the cutter. I know you mentioned that that was really the pitch. I thought that that seemed like it had kind of turned into a real weapon for him. And I I think just you know having that in the back of hitters' minds along with the changeup did make the curveball better. Not that the curveball was a terrible pitch or anything. I just I felt like the cutter was really the thing that that was the separator for him. And then I don't I don't know what to expect. I mean he threw one inning at the end of the year looked fine but obviously that's not the same as as taking the ball and throwing 100 pitches every five days for you know weeks on end so I, I think that's a real storyline to to watch as as camp gets started just to see you know whether he's able to to take the ball for those guys and and pitch the way that he did the first I think six weeks of last season before he got hurt he was really good um if he can if he can pitch like that it it really changes things in that rotation I guess kind of related to that. What are what are our expectations for for Zach Allen? I assume he's going to start the season in the rotation and not have to take on a relief role, right? That would be my expectation. I also expected them to kind of talk the whole like competition game, you know, in spring training that, you know, we have everybody here to compete for their roles and, and all of that. I think that's as far as the rotation goes, probably a, a lot of baloney. I, I think that the way it shakes out, it's probably I mean, assuming health, it would have to be Bumgarner, Ray, Weaver, Gallon, and Mike Leak. I really don't see how you can justify Merrill Kelly over Zach Gallon unless things go really poorly in spring training. I mean, like really poorly for Zach sure. Gallon. <laughs> and I feel like if he's, yeah, I mean, basically if he's not in their rotation, it's a really bad thing and it's a really big story, right? Right. So yeah, I mean, I, I think I think just as good as he looked last season in the second half, it's raised a lot of people's expectations. Look, he's, he's probably going to need to throw a few more strikes. I, I think the walks were a little bit higher than you would have liked, but, you know, you saw the the makings of like, I mean, basically four plus pitches. It was it was pretty legit to my eyes, at least. I don't see why if if this guy doesn't show up, you know, if this guy can show up with the same quality of stuff, I don't see why this guy shouldn't be one of the better starters in the league. So we talked about that magic trick of losing all of these high quality players and not really getting worse or, or still contending. And hand in hand with their continued contention at the major league level are improvements in the farm system. So just eyeballing the baseball prospectus annual, which has the graph of the farm system ranking by year for each team. And with the Diamondbacks, it's kind of up and then down and then up and then down and then up again. So in 2018, it looks like in 2017 too, their system was really just kind of bottom of the league. It looks like it was maybe 28th, 29th at that point. And now it's back up to one of the best systems systems in the game and that's even as they have continued to put together a competitive roster at the major league level so how have they done both of those things simultaneously I I know they had the big draft last year with a lot of picks so presumably that helped but have they also used other methods to kind of improve the depth on the farm and is there kind of a, a player development philosophy of the Diamondbacks because in terms of results certainly they've they've been really among the best teams in baseball in the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think there's a few things at play. You mentioned the draft. They did have seven of the top 75 picks, I think, on that first day last year. So that helps a lot. The Granke trade gave them, uh, f- well, I don't know if you count Josh Rojas as a prospect anymore, but three, possibly four prospects that were pretty relatively advanced guys. I mean, guys that were in double A, I think all, all four or, or 
in the case of Corbin Martin, already a big leaguer, although he probably won't make much of an impact this year as he's coming back from Tommy John. The Goldschmidt trade got them a couple of big leaguers, but it also got them a draft pick. It got them Andy Young, an infielder. And then as far as the the way that they've done it, you know, by more, you know, traditional means, I guess, the draft and, and international, it kind of feels like they're really focusing on up the middle guys. They're really focusing on athletes. They're really focusing on guys that seem to have some semblance of an approach already. Not a lot of like, you know, just straight free swingers. They're they're not worrying about guys necessarily having to be, you know, like physical specimens is another thing. I, I mean, I think you look at, at Corbin Carroll, you look at Alec Thomas, Dalton Varsho, these are all either relatively, you know, undersized, like shorter guys or guys that don't have like, you know, they're not like chiseled physiques necessarily in the like, you know, six foot three, you know, they're, they don't, they don't look like that, you know, five tool superstar type of guy, but that doesn't mean they don't have the tools. I think those are kind of the, the main things that the, the way they approached pitching last year, at least in the draft, I thought was kind of interesting. It was a lot of, it was a little bit of the opposite way of what I just described. It was a lot of guys with really good arms and really great stuff, but not a lot of strike throwing. So it kind of feels like they're hoping that the athleticism that they that they think that a lot of those guys have can translate into cleaner deliveries, you know, being able to repeat a little bit better, being able to throw strikes a little bit more. But, you know, we haven't really seen, uh, I mean, the, the you look at their prospect list, it's mostly populated by position players. So we haven't really seen those those pitchers make their way up yet. Curious, sort of on a related note, you know, you mentioned this this deep draft, and they have this deep farm system, and it's clear that some of these guys they're enthusiastic about and expect to be part of the next sort of good D backs core. I guess they have a good D backs core, but the next uh, playoff contending team. But we've also seen them start to use some of those players as acquisition tools. You know, they flipped a guy who they drafted last year as part of the Starling Marte deal, Brennan Malone. I'm curious what you think their approach is going to be to prospects sort of going forward and if there's anyone that they're thinking of as untouchable or are they looking to sort of strategically add and deploy some of those guys knowing that I imagine there's going to have to be some consolidation in what is a very deep system. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that the way that Mike Hazen has seems to approach it is that if they are in contention, he's not going to take it lightly. You know, if if he sees them having a roster that has a chance to compete in the offseason or a roster, you know, or if they happen to be in a situation in season in which they are in the hunt, he's not going to hesitate to to trade away from from his his farm to, you know, add on at the big league level. He he just thinks that you have a chance to win, you don't think twice. So I, I'm curious to see what that means this July, if they, if they are in fact in it, which guys they would be willing to, to touch. It seemed like from having conversations with people with other organizations, there were a group of players they really weren't willing to talk about. And it, it was, you know, kind of a lot of the guys you would expect, you know, Dalton Varsho, Geraldo Perdomo, Corbin Carroll, Blake Walston, some of those guys at the top of the system. But, you know, I, I think people were a little surprised that they were willing to, to, you know, make moves like they made, like that, that Marte move, you know, but it's, it, like I said, it just shows that, that Hazen doesn't, doesn't uh, take this stuff lightly. And I, I do think that that's, that's sort of an interesting development maybe for him. It's just like, I, I feel like when he, you know, his name came up last August slash September when Dombrowski got canned. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation that the Red Sox could come calling on him. The Dimebacks wound up giving him an extension. And given, you know, the fact that the team had had done what it's done over the last few years on, on his watch and the, the system's improved so much, you kind of feel like he has about as much job security, you would think, as as any GM in the game. 
and doesn't have to necessarily be be taking risks and, and pushing in to be winning right now. And, and yet he is, right? I mean, you know, he, he gave out an $85 million contract to Madison Bumgarner. That's, I mean, it's not the 200 and something that they gave to Granke. It's not that kind of a risk. You know, and he gave up a couple of good prospects, as you mentioned, for Starling Marte. And, you know, those are aggressive plays. And those are things that, you know, in theory, you could look up in a, a year or two and be like, ooh, that didn't work out, you know. But he's, that's just the way he's wired. You know, he, he sees a chance to win. He goes for it. It's going to take me at least a year to get used to seeing Madison Bumgarner in a D-backs <laughs> uniform. So I hope we have a little longer before we have regrets there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll ask about Bumgarner because uh, in addition to targeting higher level prospects, guys who are close to Major League ready in some of the deals that they've made, they also went out and they acquired some 30-something veterans this offseason. So Bumgarner would be the big one and then Starling Marte and Cole Calhoun. So what did they see uh, in Bumgarner? What did they like? about him and how did the deal that they reached with him help them make subsequent moves because i know that you wrote that the structure right. of that contract helped them land Marte. yeah i mean they they talked about bumgarner you know being able to to you know be a, a front of the rotation starter that's how they view him you know you kind of look at at the cost right and you you assume that you know maybe the rest of the industry didn't really view him that way when you've got what probably what three other guys three other starting pitchers got got paid more than him this offseason now Bumgarner also reportedly well I guess not reportedly he said that he did leave some money on the table to come here I I think this was his top choice he's you know always enjoyed his time in Arizona apparently from spring trainings past and you know likes the idea of having a ranch and you know kind of living that type of life so I think he maybe did make some concessions to come here but yeah, I mean, I think the other, the other, a couple other things, you know, there's, there's uh, Matt Hurgis is the Dimax new pitching coach. He was the Giants bullpen coach. So there's a level of familiarity with him. It sounded like he was, Bumgarner was very open to making adjustments and, and kind of looking at different things from an analytics perspective um, over the last couple of years. And I think maybe the Diamondbacks are hoping that there's other things that, that they can, uh, you know, other adjustments that they can make to kind of get him back to being the guy he was a few years ago. But I mean, I guess you also look at him and, you know, even if it's just sort of a, a slow slide back, like a CC Sabathia type of thing, that's not a bad pitcher to have on your staff and probably not a terrible contract. But I do feel like there is a little bit of risk, especially when you start looking at the the way some of his pitches have backed up. You look at the, the home and road numbers, you know, outside of San Francisco, it is not been too pretty for Bumgarner in recent years. So we'll have to see how that plays out. And then as far as his contract goes, he uh, he was willing to structure it in a in a bit of a creative manner. I think that the first year of the deal, he's only making, is it $6 million? And that really opened up the Diamondbacks to do a lot more spending this winter. I don't think that they would have, I mean, look, it's all baseball teams. I mean, it, it, you know, all these baseball teams have a lot more money than they probably pretended to have. So, I mean, if the Dimex had wanted to go get Starling Marte, they probably still could have, but they might not have chosen to had Bumgarner not been willing to uh, be as financially flexible. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's that kind of shows you something about about his commitment to to coming here and wanting to be on a winning team. And it just makes a lot of sense. The Dimex have a lot of uh, five plus guys that are going to be going into their last arbitration year, hitting free agency. They're not going to be able to keep them all. So the, a lot of money is going to be coming off of the books in theory after this season. And that's when Bumgarner salaries are going to start escalating. So it, it kind of lines up really perfectly with uh, with their future. 
Yeah, and one of those guys who's a season away from free agency is Robbie Ray, who was rumored to be on the block for much of this winter and was not traded or has not been traded. So is he someone they just decided, well, we're going for it this year, so we're going to hang on to him? Or is it a case where maybe he'll still be traded midseason because we've seen the Diamondbacks do that and still try to contend with whatever they get back for the guy that they trade at the deadline? Yeah, I don't think that Hazen would lo- like loves the idea of of selling and buying at the same time unless he's sort of maybe like forced into the situation like he was last July by a, a team that really hadn't been able to separate itself from the pack. So I would guess that if they're in it, he keeps him and and plows ahead. But I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, were they to fall out of it, of course he would he would be a guy that they would look to trade. And you know, I don't know exactly how it came about that they kept him. I mean, my sense was last year at the deadline that they had a high price and the people I was talking to with other clubs just weren't really sold that he was going to be the the type of impact arm that the price that they were going to have to pay would warrant. You know, it's it's a it's probably a a five or, you know, five plus inning type of guy at this point. He's pretty dominant over those stretches, but it's it's you know, he labors, it's a lot of pitches, it's some walks, it's deep counts it's it's uh it's just hard to to uh, hard for him to pitch consistently deep into games and i mean look I, I i think that around here it's become a very frustrating thing for a lot of dimebacks fans over the years that he hasn't been able to do that i kind of feel like maybe we're at the point where it's I mean, and we're probably past this point where it's just like look this this is what he is like this is a good pitcher even if he's not able to go super deep into games yeah would you would you rather him you know be able to throw more strikes, of course. Would you like him to do other things? Of course. But as it is, maybe we we probably need to kind of appreciate him for what he is. We've already made mention of, uh, at least in passing, of Sterling Marte and Cole Calhoun. The D-backs have practically an entirely new outfield configuration. Peralta's returning, but Marte and Calhoun are new. And they actually ranked pretty decently in outfield war last year, but a lot of that was Cattell Marte. (laughs) And so I'm curious sort of what the outlook for this unit is now. Are these guys, you know, presumably are being made brought in to sort of help them win now, but are the, is the team actually or viewing them as sort of a bridge to some of their outfield prospects like Corbin Carroll, or is it expected that this is going to be a better and improved unit than what we saw last year? Yeah, I mean, I think ideally it would be both, right? I, I think you don't really know what you're getting with either of the outfield corners, though. Peralta, when he has been healthy, has been a, a really good player, but he's also getting a little older and he's coming off a shoulder surgery. And you know how that goes. I mean, this is you don't really even have to look any further than Peralta himself. Like he had a wrist surgery a few years back, came back the next year and said he felt great, but just really wasn't the same impact guy that he'd been in the past. And then he came back in 2018 and raked and was like, you know what? I didn't realize, but my wrist just, it really wasn't all the way back. So I kind of wonder, you know, and look, we've seen lots of guys, or at least I've covered lots of guys that have had shoulder issues and hitters and that they come in the next year and it just isn't the same. We'll see. And then Calhoun, I mean, obviously had a pretty solid year last year with the Angels, but, you know, struggled for long stretches in in each of the, I think, two previous years. Yeah. I think he's a good defender. I think that he's going to grind out at bats. I I think there's a lot that they like about him. They did give him a two-year deal. So I I think that, and Peralta also just got extended. I, I forgot to mention that. So yeah, they're hoping that both of those guys are going to be around. Most of those outfield prospects are probably still a couple of years away. I would guess Corbin Carroll starts in low A or or it extended and then gets to low A. 
Uh, Alec Thomas will be in high A. Christian Robinson's probably going to start in low A. So, I mean, optimistically, you're probably hoping for, what, a 2022 arrival for most of those guys? I mean, Alec Thomas, I guess, could could speed that up. But uh, yeah, I, I think that, again, that, that kind of, you, you can kind of think along with Mike Hazen a lot of the time, and you can kind of see how that's, that seems to be timed pretty well for them, assuming those guys pan out as prospects. Yeah, I guess that for most of them, they're not even pressing 40-man decisions until 2022 or 2023. So they have a little time before they have to stretch those guys into major league roles. Oh, and I, you know what? I forgot to mention Dalton Varsho, who yeah. is a catcher, but saw time in the outfield last year at the end of the double-A season. And I wouldn't be surprised if he you know, shows up in the outfield at some point uh, in time in, in 2020. Was it a priority for the Diamondbacks to move Cattell Marte back to the infield, either for health reasons or performance reasons? Or was it just a matter of, well, there's another Marte available who is <laughs> also very good and we can get both of them? I mean, they won't really come out and say it, but I feel like it was kind of a priority because of health. I mean, look, he, he suffered a, a stress reaction in his lower back and stress reactions are injuries brought upon by overuse. You know, he was, he obviously, I think he hit 329. He was on the bases more than he'd ever been in his career. He was playing the outfield. So he was running around there more than he had in his career. And on top of that, he was running around on an artificial surface at Chase Field, which all those outfielders said was great. You know, as good of an artificial surface as you can get, but still an artificial surface and not grass. And they said it did take a toll on their bodies. So to me, it it kind of seemed like a no-brainer for a guy in Marte who has suddenly become like, you know, just their their far and away most important player, a guy who I mean, he had turned into that guy on a on a team where you're like, if you're the other team, you're dreading when he's coming up to bat. You know, like he's he's a he was a monster at the end of the season last year. They can't afford to have that guy go down with with another injury like that. Uh, you know, God forbid it be something even more serious than than what it was. So I, I think that was a priority. You know, they were pursuing a lot of center fielders in the offseason, including Akiyama. Um, and and did finally end up on Marte. So I wanted to ask about both that synthetic surface and the humidor, just about how both of those things have been received and what impact any, if any, they have had so far. Yeah, well, I mean, the humidor has been very well received by half of the team and not so well received <laughs> by the other half. <laughs> I mean, it it's definitely changed the way that that baseball is played at Chase Field. I you know used to say that it was you know just a a little bit south of of Coors Field. I mean, it it didn't have the playing surface, so it didn't have quite as. I mean, the the amount of playing surface, so it didn't have quite as much, you know, green out there for for bloops to find. But man, balls would fly. The grass was was hard and fast, so you know, balls would shoot through the gaps and get to the walls, get to the corners. They would shoot through the infield. It just made for a very uh, hitter friendly environment. I don't I don't know exactly how the turf is, has affected that. It does seem like it played a little bit slower. That's a hard thing to, to tell after, I don't know, it's just, it's just hard to, to trust your eyes on that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, one thing that the guys did say was that you always knew what the bounces were going to be like. It wasn't a matter of coming back from a road trip and starting a new homestand and the grass was not growing as well or, or had, you know, was struggling at this time compared to what it was, you know, the last time they were in town, which, which was the case out here. I mean, it's, it's it's tricky to to grow grass in 110 degree weather, and so uh, you know they just thought it was a more consistent a more consistent surface. Uh, that that's probably the the thing I heard the most. 
That sort of uh, leads us to a topic that has been, I think, largely on the back burner, but is still probably percolating, which is the state of that ballpark just generally. Uh, the D-backs have expressed some desire for a new facility. What's the latest and greatest on whether they're going to stick around at Chase? There hasn't been an awful lot on that. They have said that it has been kind of a back burner issue, which I guess, I mean, I guess that could be the case. It, it could be you know, code for they haven't had much luck finding somebody else to build them a ballpark. Sure. I don't know. But uh, they and they've, they've talked about, you know, how remaining there and trying to improve the area around Chase Field, like, you know, maybe, you know, finding space for a, a hotel or some kind of a shopping district or, you know, Derek Hall, the, the team CEO has has mentioned the Atlanta ballpark and the, the area surrounding it as kind of the model going forward for a lot of these new ballparks and something that they would like to do if they were to build a new one. And he said, short of building a new one, maybe they could find a way to kind of incorporate some of those aspects into Chase Field. But it's it's been quiet. There, there really hasn't been any, you know, at least publicly, we don't really know of any progress uh, that's been made. Before we ask one or two big picture questions, I just wanted to ask one about Nick Ahmed, because I think he's someone who kind of gets lost a little bit. Maybe he's underrated. I just, as I was prepping for this interview, I was just reappreciating how <laughs> valuable he has been, especially on defense. He's been a gold glover in back-to-back seasons and very well-deserved, at least if you go by the stats. In fact, since the beginning of 2018, only Matt Chapman and Lorenzo Cain have a higher defensive run saved total among all major league players. And I can't really call to mind what a signature Nick Ahmed play looks like in the way that I can with some other standout fielders. And so I wanted to ask what you think makes him such a, a sterling shortstop. Is it range? Is it dependability? Is it good hands? Is it positioning? What does he do so well? I think it's a combination of all of those things. And you're right, there isn't like that. Uh, he, I mean, he he makes a lot of great plays, but there's not like one thing that he is known for. You're right. Yeah. Probably the the best attribute that I can think of is the arm strength and the arm accuracy. It seems like his throws are almost always on the money, and it doesn't seem to matter what arm angle he's throwing from or you know which direction his body is taking him. He's just really sure-handed, really consistent and makes really good throws all the time. And yeah, I mean, he keeps getting better offensively. There was a about a two-month stretch in the middle of the season where he was where he was like one of the two or three best sitting shortstops in the league. Now, I mean, he's, you know, still coming in a little bit below average in terms of overall offensive performance, but compared to shortstops, especially shortstops that defend as well as he does, he's pretty good. And I'm curious to see whether they're able to hammer out an extension with him. Short of that, I'm curious to see what his value will be on the open market. He's a guy that, I mean, he's he's had a hip surgery in his career, and it didn't seem to change his, you know, physically, like, what he was capable of at all. He's going to be 30 next month, I think. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how the market is going to view a, an, an aging shortstop, but one who is hasn't fallen off at all. And I, I almost feel like even if he does fall off a little bit, there's still a really good shortstop in there and you know do you believe in him offensively as kind of that you know the the Ozzie Smith Omar Vizquel like guy who as they get a little bit older and a little bit you know wiser to what pitchers are trying to do and you know just getting a little bit more you know obviously hundreds of more at bats every year of experience 
are they able to kind of turn themselves into, you know, is he going to be that kind of guy that just can, you, you can count on to be sort of a, a league average ish hitter as he gets older? Okay. Let's shift to some bigger picture questions. One is more short term. The other is long term. So we'll start with the one for this season. Obviously this team is in some ways still rebuilding, but is in a lot of ways trying to be competitive. And I guess what will the Diamondbacks define? fine as a successful season for themselves this year like what are what are they really trying to achieve in 2020 yeah i I don't think it's anything short of a of a playoff appearance i think that that they kind of spelled that out pretty well with the you know going after uh aggressively and and being willing to part with with prospects i think the fact that they only have starling Marte for a couple of years i mean tells you that they think that that this team right now this this there's a window yeah whether that's the case or not i don't know you know, I, I kind of look at a lot of the roster and, and it feels like there's a lot of players that, and I don't mean this, that they're that they're bad, but there's just a lot of players that seem like they're more likely to take steps back than steps forward. Like, it's just hard to imagine Cattell Marte being any better than he was. And maybe the same is true for Eduardo Escobar and even uh, Christian Walker. That was a really good season. He had a really yeah. solid season. I don't know. I mean, there, there's reasons to believe the opposite for all of those guys, for sure. But yeah, I'm I'm just I'm curious to see how that plays out. And then I guess that leads us to the other question, which is what are the, what are this team's realistic ambitions in the West? Obviously, they have a resurgent Padres team that also has a deep farm and has spent a lot in free agency. And then you have the Dodgers who finally got this Mookie Betts deal done and didn't really need him to win the West on top of that. So where do they see themselves positioned in the division in the next couple of years? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think that it's hard to look more than a couple of years ahead at any point in time for any team in any division. And looking, you know, just a couple of years ahead, it's hard to predict the Diamondbacks catching the Dodgers, right? On on paper, at least. I mean, things things can go horribly wrong for one team, and things can go especially well for another. And you know, in, in a given season. Um, but, you know, given the resources that the Dodgers have, the farm system that they have, the, the you know, shrewd management that they have, it's just, it feels like it's going to be tough. I, I think that the Diamondbacks' best hope would be for, you know, the, a lot of this this core of, of prospects that are kind of th- this wave that's kind of coming up through the minors together to pan out and, and be the next, you know, the next group um, for, you know, Christian Robinson to, to turn into a middle-of-the-order hitter for, Dalton Varsho and Alec Thomas and Corbin Carroll and Perdomo and all of those guys to be, you know, above average everyday big leaguers. If that sort of thing happens, then yeah, you can maybe see a day where, where they can really compete in the division. But I mean, it's just, it's hard. It's, it's hard to, to anticipate that sort of thing as, as well run as the Dodgers are. Well, we structured this interview to end with these big picture questions, but before I ask the prediction question, I want to ask about one bench guy. I just realized that this would be incomplete if I did not ask about Tim LoCastro because he's come up on the podcast a couple of times back on episode 1462. Sam did a stat blast about him and about his incredible hit by pitch rate and his 
getting hit by pitches more often than he walks, which is very unusual. And he is also the fastest player in baseball, at least according to Baseball Savant's sprint speed leaderboard. He had a 30.8 per second sprint speed in 2019. That was faster than everyone else, anyone else. So tell us about Tim LaCastro and (laughs) why does he get hit by so many pitches? I can't entirely explain the hit by pitches. He he is obviously unwilling to move. Um, <laughs> uh, he um, twenty two, I should say, in two hundred fifty plate appearances last year. That's yeah, yeah. It's un- it was unbelievable. And you're sitting up there, and every time that it happens, you're like, "What is what is that guy? Not not Lacasher, the pitcher. Like, what is he doing? Why would you even?" bother throwing him a pitch even near the inside corner because he's just he takes it he's just fearless he he had a he had a funny quote i I don't remember how it came up but he like i I think i remember now he he set the diamondbacks record for hit by pitches this was in september and he got back to the to the clubhouse and he had a text from his mom he didn't even know he had set this record until he got a text from his mom and i'm like I'm like, oh wow, that's that's funny. What did, what does your mom think of it? And she goes, she thinks I'm an idiot. <laughs> she she tells me to get out of the way. She thinks I'm nuts. And, and it's true. I mean, he just he just it's like Happy Gilmore. And I mean, they did a spoof of that, the Happy Gilmore scene on a, on for Dimeback's social media at some point last season. It was pretty funny. You should you should find it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he he's an entertaining player. Beyond that, he steals bases at will. Yeah, that's the other thing. You wouldn't want to put a guy on who, to this point, yeah. has never been never caught been stealing. Caught. <laughs> yeah, it's 22 for 22. Yeah, so like, I don't know how many times it was a hit by pitch followed by a steal, but it, it did feel like a lot of times, it, you know, he's just standing on second after a pitch, and it's like a like just a leadoff double. You know, defensively, we didn't see a ton of him in center field. Uh, his routes on the corners were a little adventurous at times, but he was one of those guys who would always make up for it, of course, because he runs so well. And he was fearless there too. I mean, he, he was, I remember a play of him jumping into the stands to make a catch. I mean, he's just kind of your classic grinder type of player. I'm not sure exactly how he's going to fit on this roster. I, I mean, I think he's going to be on it. I'm not sure how much he'll play or, or if, if there's necessarily a carved out role for him. But there's a lot of fans clamoring for him to get more playing time, uh, as fun as he can be to watch. Yeah. All right. So we'll end with the prediction. And, you know, as we've covered, there are not really a lot of glaring holes on this roster. I I guess there aren't a ton of superstars either, but it's a a pretty strong roster top to bottom. Somewhat surprisingly, the Diamondbacks have the National League's most hitters projected to have a 100 DRC plus or better, according to Pakoda. That includes some guys who may not even make the roster at the beginning of the year, but that speaks to their depth. I guess you could maybe quibble with the bullpen and they did add Hector. Rondon and Junior Guerra this offseason. I don't know if that's enough, but what I'm saying is it, it seems like they're in for another competitive season, but how many wins do you foresee them having in 2020? I don't know. Like I like I said earlier, I kind of feel like guys are gonna are gonna regress a little more than than there mm-hmm. are guys that are gonna step up, but I still think they could be better. They won eighty five last year. I think I'm gonna put them at eighty seven. Mm-hmm. All right. So you can follow the Diamondbacks season. Nick will be covering it all year long for the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. You can also find him on Twitter at his name, Nick Picoro. Thank you as always, Nick. Thanks, guys.
All right, that will do it for today. Thanks for listening. That's a long one. Thanks to Meg and Sahadev and Nick. One of the hazards of this series is that sometimes teams will make moves after we talk about them. So we previewed the Padres on the last show last week, and subsequently the Padres made a trade with the Rays. Padres traded Manuel Margot and another prospect for Rays reliever Emilio Pagan, who's coming off a really good season. So we talked to AJ Casavell on that episode about how the Padres had an outfield logjam and a really excellent bullpen. Well, now a little less of a logjam in the outfield and an even better bullpen. I was just thinking, by the way, that there really has not been any dead spot on the baseball calendar this year. Usually these off-season episodes, there's some point in January or February where we regret making this a year-long, three-episodes-a-week podcast, and we think, what were we thinking? Doing a baseball podcast when there's no baseball going on, it's sometimes hard to figure out what to talk about, and there just really has not been a point where we had no material to work with this off-season. Not always for good reasons, not always positive stories, but boy, there was always some sort of story, whether it was the wild winter meetings and the renewed free agent spending and the record contracts and then the Astros sign-stealing scandal, which has played out in three or four installments, and then the Red Sox stuff and Beltron and Cora being let go, then the Mookie trade. It just never stops. So not all of this has reflected well on the sport, but it has kept baseball at the forefront of our minds and in the national conversation, much more so than it usually is. And it's made it easy on us podcasters too. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up to pledge some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Patrick Green, Craig Minami, Doug Graham, Paul Garrity, and Steve Descala. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcastfancrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We will tentatively be back with another team preview podcast next time. Should be the Angels and the Cardinals. So we will talk to you a little later this week. Cool breaker.